the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 31, Christian Monasticism. If I wanted to explain the history of Christianity, I would need to compile a large number of podcast episodes to have any kind of chance of succeeding in describing the many different branches and attitudes, both extinct and still active, in every different part of the world that Christianity exists, or has ever existed. This episode really isn't about Christianity as a religion though. This episode is about the practice of monasticism, how it evolved and who the most important and influential individuals were who influenced monasticism. In its most fundamental form, the act of monasticism is the act of sacrificing some or all of your personal indulgences and living in recluse to carry out duties in coordination with the religious rule of your monastery, such as helping others to learn, promoting peaceful existence, and practising prayer. Christianity doesn't necessarily dictate this way of life, but founders of monastic movements have interpreted this to be a pious way of life, through their own reading, learning interpretation of information and spiritual journey. Those men who commit to a life of monasticism are called monks and the women are called nuns. The act of denying yourself from any kind of luxury is called asceticism and this type of behaviour is often associated with monasticism in general. We have stumbled across asceticism in relation to spiritual beliefs when talking about the spiritual journey of Siddhartha Gautama, the original Buddha, who lived during the 6th and 5th centuries BCE in the lands of the Ganges River Valley. Gautama practised asceticism in a bid to discover the secret of attaining spiritual enlightenment long before the advent of Christianity and in a completely different area of the world. In Jainism and Hinduism, the most extreme forms of asceticism involved individuals denying themselves food and water, meaning that they would just slowly die due to them having completed their meaningful human existence. So the act of being monastic or behaving like a monk is something that stretches back before the age of Christianity. Christianity itself flourished in the Roman Empire from initial humble beginnings. It was not until the later years of the Western Roman Empire that some serious contemplation into the behaviours of Jesus Christ that Christian followers considered that selfless sacrifices could be the way to show God that one was truly dedicated to the Christian faith, the worship of God 
and the teachings of Jesus Christ. It was not until this time that the idea of monasticism as a form of Christian religious sacrifice became a serious consideration for Christian followers, and certainly if they wanted to follow Jesus Christ's examples. During the 3rd century, one such man was an Egyptian called Antony who had inherited all of his parents' estate. He heard the words of Jesus claiming that perfection could be attained by giving all of your wealth to the poor, and so Antony did just that. He gave away all of his parents' land and chose to live in destitute solitude as a hermit. After a period of around 15 years, Antony withdrew completely from the community, choosing to live in absolute solitude in an abandoned Roman fort. Antony's sacrifices and choices turned him into a highly admired man by hermits and anchorites, who are religious recluses, and they encouraged him to appear from his solitude in order to guide them, and so he did, seemingly in very good health. So Antony is retrospectively referred to as the father of all monks, even though he himself would have likely have had elders guiding him in respect of his ascetic lifestyle. Antony wasn't the first Christian monk and he certainly was recognised as the most famous of the earliest Christian monks of Egypt, often referred to as the Desert Fathers. With the spread of Islam in subsequent centuries, the remains of the Saint Antony the Great, as he came to be known, had to be moved on more than one occasion to keep them within Christendom. Their final resting place was at Saint-Antoine l'Abbaye in southeast France, subsequently named after him. They likely arrived there during the 11th century while the church was serving as the centre of a Benedictine community. Saint Anthony did not have a desire to establish an order of monks at any time during his life as he considered his journey to be a very personal one at the time or at least until he inadvertently gathered a group of followers. The followers didn't seem to have a shared common background. They were just people from all walks of life that were personally inspired by this act of asceticism. One of these inspired followers was a man called Pacomius. Pacomius was an Egyptian man that had been conscripted into the Roman army from a young age and during his time had come across the selfless behaviour of Christians. This inspired him to try to follow the example of Saint Anthony the Great, but Pacomius, possibly thanks to divine instruction, established a building where ascetic men could congregate and live their lives under the guidance of Pacomius. This may be the earliest concept of a Christian monastery and because it differs from St Anthony's manner of practising monasticism, this form of monastic congregation is called Cenobitic monasticism. There are suggestions of other Cenobitic monasticism around the 3rd century and also even earlier in some Jewish sects despite monasticism not generally being popular within Judaism. Egypt was the origination of Arianism, which supported the idea that Jesus Christ is not eternal, but begotten by God. 
This caused the schism within the Roman Empire as other Christians believed that Jesus Christ was a part of God. Therefore, a council was called at the Anatolian city of Nicaea in 325, where it was determined that Jesus Christ was indeed a part of God and that Arianism was heresy. This proclamation was part of what we know today as the Nicene Creed. One of the earlier major proponents of the Nicene Creed was a man called Basil of Caesarea, an ancient city in the Cappadocian area of Anatolia. Basil was born after the Nicene Creed but would become a bishop during the 4th century. Basil, like Antony, came from a wealthy background and he would use this wealth to travel around the lands of the Eastern Roman Empire where he would become inspired by Egyptian monks. Despite being from a wealthy background like Antony, Basil was an advocate of the Cenobitic monasticism that Pacomius practised. Basil continued the belief that the ascetic style of living would bring a man closer to a life of Christian perfection, but he also believed that monasticism had a part to play in the wider community and the Christian church itself by contributing to society and supporting the poor. His methods were respected by the Eastern Christian Church and his methods meant that the role of monasticism in Christian society was starting to be taken seriously by the wider community. He has come to be known as St Basil the Great. So we can cite these three men as being the chief influences of monasticism with its roots based in the Eastern Roman Empire in the classical world. The West. As we are already aware, the fortunes of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire were on completely different paths, and as a consequence, so was the Eastern Roman Christian Church and the Western Roman Christian Church. The Romans wanted to standardise Christianity, and as much as St Basil's work did not upset the Christian Church, monks had to be careful that their practices did not go against the Christian creeds and start to be perceived as heresy. With Basil being a strong supporter of the Nicene Creed, that would not happen to him. However, in the 4th century Roman Hispania, there lived a bishop who promoted a form of Christian asceticism that did upset the church. His name was Priscillian and his popularity was a concern for the bishops that were his contemporaries, so a synod was held in the city of Caesar Augusta, modern Zaragoza, where his practices were denounced. This would create an anti-Priscillian attitude within secular society, while at the same time also creating a following for Priscillian. Priscillian was ultimately executed for sorcery and his followers, the Priscillianists, were persecuted. These persecutions attracted the sympathies of a bishop called Martin of Tours. Martin himself was a monk who was popular enough to be granted the religious governance of the bishopric at Tours. His work to popularise monasticism in the West has granted him the name St Martin. 
Martin's journey into monasticism may have started after being influenced by monastic movements in Italy that had started following the visit of Egyptian monks who followed the example of St Anthony. So we can see that although the Christian church was beginning to understand and accept monasticism as demonstrated during the experiences of St Basil the Great, that it could also be seen as heresy. The problem lies not so much in the religious code of the churches and monasteries, but in the financial implications. The church would often rely on donations to prosper, but some monastic movements would attract financial donations that would be denied to the church, and this would create a problem for the church, which might easily be solved if the monasteries were able to be accused of heresy. With the fall of the Western Roman Empire came the fall of secular Christianity and so genuine piety was able to flourish once more but Christianity was scaled down to the bishoprics and monasteries that survived the devolution of the Western Roman Empire over the course of the 5th century. No longer was there an emperor overseeing the direction of Christianity within the imperial boundaries. Now Christianity would have to survive by itself. The monastery on the island of Saint-Honoré off the south coast of France is an example of a place where monks left the mainland to find sanctuary during these difficult years. Benedict Without a major empire guiding the direction of the Christian churches and monasteries, the religion began to fragment and it would come down to members of the clergy themselves to step up and try to standardise Christian practices. One of the earliest such individuals to step up to this challenge was a man called Benedict of Nursia. One of the books that I enjoyed using for reference on this subject was written in 1925 by the British politician Ian Campbell Hanna, called Christian Monasticism, A Great Force in History. His overview of Benedict of Nursia is worth reading directly. Quote, the very shortest list of the world's great statesmen must include St. Benedict's name. He stands with Julius Caesar as the chief moulder of one of the great civilizational organisations of past years. If we would see things in their true proportion, in the light of real historical perspective, religion wholly apart, it must appear that Hannibal or Napoleon or even Alexander left a smaller dent on the general story of mankind. Unquote. Benedict's great achievement was the rule of St Benedict, which in its essence was a moderate set of monastic rules. We have to be very careful how we describe this, as it is difficult to do so as nothing is absolute. This was not the first monastic guidance ever written. Previous guidances for monastic behaviour were written by older monastic icons such as Saint Pacomius. But the guidances became much more like strict rules of conduct during the period of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, such as those written within the anonymously written Rule of the Master. Benedict provided clarity for the monastic way of life. Becoming a monk 
was always a sacrifice to religion, so it would always be a very humble existence, free from all the vices of everyday life. But Benedict's rules made it comprehensible to know what it is to be a monk and what is expected of a monk. The head of a monastery is an abbot and would be the one to guide the monks of the monastery in their everyday practices, very much as St. Pacomius did in his early Cenobitic monastery in Egypt. So as long as the abbot understood and adhered to the rule of St. Benedict, then the Benedictine monastery could operate according to the rules. The rule of St. Benedict offered instructions on sleeping, eating and clothing habits, as well as the manner in which produce of the monastery should be sold and how monks should travel in order to sell their goods and offer help to the poor and needy. The rules showed clemency towards monks who suffered from illness and were unable to adhere to the instructions because of it, but also offered instructions to the abbot should a monk simply choose to deviate from the instructions of the rule, which could ultimately result in total excommunication. Many embraced the clarity offered by St Benedict, feeling that they could live happily and harmoniously in the pursuit of human perfection in honour of Jesus Christ. And this is why Benedictine monasticism was attractive to the average monk. The proliferation of Benedictine monasticism was encouraged by a growing power in the Christian world, the Bishopric of Rome, otherwise known as the Papacy. One particular pope was a great adherent of the Benedictine order and his name was Gregory, later to be known as Gregory the Great. When Gregory was born, Benedict was in his final years at Monte Cassino in Italy where the first Benedictine abbey was established. Benedict helped to found a number of monasteries during his lifetime and Gregory continued that work, choosing an ascetic lifestyle and using his inherited wealth to further build Benedictine monasteries. Gregory was the Bishop of Rome when the Italians were coming to terms with the fact that the Eastern Roman Empire was indifferent to their plight following a century of warfare, bloodshed and uncertainty rendering its value to Constantinople as low. So Gregory showed an indifference towards Constantinople, preferring to invest his energy into befriending local people such as the Lombards under their king Agiluf, who was subsequently baptised. By this time, the British Isles had started to be populated by Germanic peoples who brought their pagan traditions with them. Pushing Christian practices first introduced there via Roman occupation into the corners of the islands. A form of Celtic monasticism emerged in isolation to the practices of Europe, but Pope Gregory would look to target the pagan Anglo-Saxons of Great Britain for conversion before there would be later attempts to reconcile Celtic Christian and Catholic Christian practices in the British Isles, particularly symbolised by the Synod of Whitby in around the year 664. If there was a general cynicism within the Christian church that monasticism had the potential to become too wealthy, then this was perhaps an issue for the papacy when viewing the insular Celtic church as monasticism did not exist in Europe in the same financial proportion 
insular Celtic abbeys were also known to own large estates, for example. The secular power of Europe that became dominant during the 8th century was that of the Franks. The Franks took control of territories that had drifted apart culturally since the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, with their most influential emperor being King Charlemagne, who ruled over the turn of the 9th century and whose power was embraced by the papacy, who declared him as the new Roman emperor, much to the chagrin of the Byzantines who viewed themselves as the true Romans. Charlemagne recognised the value of standardising monasticism within Frankish territories and the rule of Benedictine was the perfect tool. So with the clarity of St Benedict of Nursia, the support of Pope Gregory and the promotion of Emperor Charlemagne, Benedictine monasticism proliferated. Cluny It is difficult to pinpoint the exact motivations behind the establishment of Cluny Abbey, but its existence and place in the story of the history of monasticism is highly remarkable. We now advance to the 10th century. Aquitaine was at this time a duchy within West Francia, and in around a century after the order of Charlemagne and his son Louis the Pious to standardise monasticism within the Frankish Empire, Indiscipline had entered into monasticism with some of the abbeys becoming quite wealthy and frivolous. Duke William of Aquitaine sought advice from one of the more admired abbots of the area called Berno, and Berno advocated a transformation of the estate at Cluny to become the site of a very special monastery that would set an example to other monasteries by carrying out a strict adherence to the rule of St Benedict under pain of punishment such as being physically whipped or starved. Its strict attitude restored the respect of the piety of monasticism in West Francia and its influence would spread beyond West Francian borders. It was determined that Cluny should be free from secular jurisdiction and should not fall into any episcopal see, meaning that the monastery was accountable to no bishop, save the Pope in Rome. The abbey building itself was so impressive that when it assumed its third form in the late 11th century, it became the largest building in Europe, with one of the world's most impressive libraries. Of course, learning is encouraged as part of a monastic lifestyle, which is why there is such a high regard for the writing of chronicles alongside educational material. The scribe could often be seen as the second highest ranking individual of a monastery beneath the abbot himself. Cluny would eventually preside over other monasteries and priories that could be described as Cluniac houses. This was somewhat unprecedented because monasteries tended to be autonomous organisations, but now the abbot of Cluny was becoming something more than just a humble abbot. It had been determined that Cluny was free from accountability, meaning that the abbot could go about his business unchallenged, and this would give him great political power that could almost be compared to the Pope. It was almost as if the abbot of Cluny was to Western European Christian monasteries what the Pope was to Western European Christian churches. 
Medieval orders. Despite all of these attempts to create orders by which monasticism could be clearly defined, it turned out that the definition of monasticism and of being a monk was continually subject to change and interpretation. Sometimes there would be dissatisfaction with the behaviours at certain monasteries that would cause particular monks to want to move away from their home monastery and establish their own order with a different attitude. The Cluniac monasteries were elaborations of the Benedictine order, which was generally regarded as the most popular form of monastic observance in the lands of France. While the amazing abbey was being built at Cluny, other monks were questioning the nature of their monastic lifestyles. In the late 11th century at the abbey of the French village of Tonnerre, the abbot called Robert was concerned by the diminished efforts of some of the monks to adhere to Benedictine principles and was encouraged to found a new abbey at the village of Malebma. Malebma Abbey attracted much in the way of financial donations and became a popular monastery. Robert would then go on to found Sito Abbey with a desire to follow the rule of Benedict even more closely even looking to promote the monastic tradition of manual labour that had not been encouraged by the Cluniac order. The movement at Sito Abbey would therefore be called the Order of the Cistercians. The Cistercians wore white religious robes, whereas the original Benedictine monks wore black. The Cistercian order became incredibly popular and within the first century of its existence, its traditions had spread to many different countries of Western Europe, including the British Isles. The Cistercians promoted scholarship and learning. Another monk who had found himself at Molemma Abbey was a man called Bruno of Colonia. Bruno was on the verge of becoming a bishop, but due to his concerns about the secular nature of the Roman Catholic Church, he opted to head to Malemma instead, but he wasn't enamoured by the Cistercian direction that Robert of Malemma was heading towards, so he ended up at a place called Chartreuse, where he would establish a hermitage. Unlike the Cistercians, who lived in quite a communal manner, the monks at Chartres, who would be called the Carthusians, would live in solitary cells and be attended by lay brothers, who were simply a different class in the monastery, who had alternative duties. The order of the Carthusians is less popular than the Cistercian order, but the Grand Chartres mother house still stands to this day. Around a hundred years later, a child was born in the town of Assisi in the Duchy of Spoleto in the Italian peninsula. His mother baptised him as Giovanni, but his father would call him Francesco. When he came of age, he would indulge himself in a life of pleasures, spending money and having fun. At around the age of 25, Francesco changed his attitude to life becoming more pious. He would turn his attention to helping the poor and restoring chapels. Francesco would embrace the pious life of asceticism, but he would not choose to live in solitude and shut away from the world as could often be the case with some of the monastic orders of the medieval world. 
Instead, Francesco would look to celebrate the natural world around him. The order that Francesco established would not permit monks to own any property and so therefore they would be called friars and they would have to earn their survival by begging for food and shelter. So this was the beginning of the mendicant order of friars. One of Francesco's closest followers was a woman called Claire who created a Franciscan order of nuns called the Poor Clares. Francesco is often more commonly referred to as St Francis of Assisi. Franciscan friars have sometimes disagreed about the levels of poverty that they should live under and that has sometimes caused fractures within their particular monastic culture over the course of its history. The Franciscan friars did not live at a monastery and were therefore not accountable to a fixed abbot due to their mobility. They would often seek shelter in churches and demonstrate to society an example of an existence that honoured the values of Jesus Christ. Another mendicant movement would look to travel and preach the values of Christianity rather than just show simple example like the Franciscans and this movement would be led by a Castilian priest called Dominic. Dominic would advise his followers to forget the chores of manual labour often promoted in other monastic movements and focus more on their preaching. The Dominicans would travel to wherever they felt that their preaching would have the most impact and therefore, much like the Franciscans, would remain on the move as opposed to the historic monastic movements based at monasteries and abbeys. Dominican friars took pride in their knowledge and intellect and like the Franciscans would encourage women to become nuns as much as they would encourage men to become monks. So these are the most impressive Western Christian monastic movements in the first millennium or so after the life of Jesus Christ. We can look upon monasticism as something which initially detached itself from everyday life but gradually integrated itself into the growing urban populations of medieval Europe. We can almost view them as the shepherds, not just of Christianity itself, but of Christian culture. By playing their part within Christian society, they would encourage that society to realise its full potential by improving the attitude of those within it, by encouraging them to improve themselves on an individual level, by teaching the values of piety, tolerance, support, learning, development and worship. The mendicant movements such as the Franciscans and the Dominicans integrated themselves back into secular society, something which St Anthony, the father of all monks, worked hard to avoid. However, the mendicants had a profound effect on Christendom and the legacy of their movements can be discovered in New World place names such as the American city of San Francisco and the Dominican capital city of Santo Domingo. Monks still exist in the Orthodox churches of the East, but their existence and development remained much more simplistic, more in line with the work of the Desert Fathers and away from the secular influence of the West that caused monasticism to continually reinvent itself creating the Benedictine and Mendicant Orders. Essentially, Christian monasticism is the pursuit of individual spiritual perfection 
by emulating aspects of Jesus Christ's way of life, teachings and sacrifices. It would take time for monasticism to be taken seriously by the Christian church and by Christian nations. Christian monasticism could even be described as a definitive religious movement against evil doing. Christian monasticism still exists in the modern world and can act as a comforting constant in an ailing society, more so in Eastern European countries that have experienced hardships such as Russia and Ukraine. In the Western world, monasticism is not particularly popular with younger generations who tend to have a much more universal attitude towards Christianity, feeling no necessity to observe Christian traditions and practices, unlike generations before them. With the dawn of the internet age, however, monastic movements can reach more people than ever before. Thanks very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on Christian monasticism. Listener messages and reviews. Got quite a few to get through this week, so we're going to motor through them as quickly as possible. Giulio uh, uh, Agnetti has uh, written in um, saying, Hello, I'm in awe at how you created such a great podcast series and I wish, you, uh, wish for you all the success and merit you deserve. I'm a biochemist by training, though I double in cell biology. Uh, please feel free to ping me if you ever have any questions about these topics or medicine and pharmaceuticals in general. Uh, about me, I'm a, an Italian academic and have been working at a pretty famous university in the US for the past 17 years. I run my own little lab and enjoy cooking, eating, drinking beer, teaching judo outside of work. And last but not least, your amazing podcast. Also, I go by G. Cheers, G. Well, thank you very much, G. That's a very uh, kind message. Great to hear all about you. Uh, we have got uh, Matt Hayden has written in. Of course, he was the one that commissioned the special episode on the volcanic winter of 536. He's put, hi, Chris, thanks so much for lifting some of the fog of 536 i know it ended with some mystery but i appreciate you illuminating some of the perils of being alive that year um thank you very much matt of course you weren't the right to that episode and uh you know i'm i'm never going to be one to sort of state uh, categorically what i think happened when experts uh have been in no position to do that um at all in any case so like i'll always give you a balanced overview or endeavor do my best to give you a balanced overview um bill morrison has written in so chris just thought i'd drop you a line from switzerland where i'm binge listening to history of the world podcast just as uh just at the history of writing at the moment uh, got a bit of a challenge for you. I think your piece on the late Bronze Age was excellent, but why was the impact so long-lasting? Large areas of Mesopotamia were overrun by non-literate people from the hills, but were back up and running within a few generations. Why did the collapse have such a lasting effect? Um, loving the podcast, Bill. I think we can be... Um, yeah, just 
like try and give you the briefest answer possible. I think we can be uh, tricked into thinking that uh, populations in the uh, in the ancient world were um, similar to what they are in the modern world. And that, they certainly wasn't. People were sparsely scattered around, and and if a society was dispersed for it, for for whatever reason. Um, it may have been unlikely that it would have had any kind of nucleus to be able to restart. And um, the difference with um, Mesopotamia and uh, the Nile are that they are river societies, so it, it just is a natural thing for people to coalesce near the rivers, whereas the Mycenaeans, the Hittites, were... Um, you know, were making their fortunes um, in the hills, really, or the, in the craggy, mountainous lands of of where they came from. So there was probably better opportunities to restart their society elsewhere, and uh, that's why um, it seems like it was much more long-lasting. Um, David Peace wrote in and put many thanks uh, for your notice and many, many thanks for pursuing your history review review with such determination, scale and style. You are a masterful writer and raconteur and I have and have an uncanny ability to bring topics at hand to life. I love the tempo, cadence and content of your presentation. I learned something new and relevant with each episode. Your recent episode on New Amsterdam especially hit home as I recently learned that some of my great-great-grandparents settled in New Amsterdam in the early 1600s. One especially, uh, one especially notable grandfather, Captain Martin uh, Craigier, uh, was a close aide and confidant of uh, Peter Stuyvesant. He had many military and civic roles in the colony. When the when the English came knocking at the door in 1664, Governor Stuyvesant uh, was very eager to fight against overwhelming odds. Karma heads prevailed and Peter and Martin with a few others signed off on the Articles of Capitulation on September the 8th, 1664 under very favourable terms for the Dutch. Though I grew up in Pennsylvania and Delaware, I was unaware of the existence of New Sweden, which you've referenced in the podcast. Eventually, Captain uh, uh, sorry, uh, Krieger, that's probably Captain Krieger, isn't it, had some important dealings with those Swedes, um, so yeah, I beg your pardon. Uh, um, I beg your pardon for for uh, David for mispronouncing that. Um, bottom line, I'm very grateful to you for opening my eyes to the fascinating life story of one of my ancestors. Without your podcast, I don't think I would have dug into the matter. I should note that there have been other ancestral discoveries along the way prompted by your podcast. History is not so remote when you realise you have skin in the game. There are many great topics that I would love to hear your take on. However, if I have to pick one, I would favour an episode on Elizabeth I and the Sea Dogs of Plymouth with an eye to how England started out on the path of becoming a global empire. I found a way to singe the and sorry and found a way to singe the beard of Philip II. Any technical insight into how Hawkins successfully refashioned the English fleet to take on Philip's armada would be appreciated. Certainly, plenty to relate. Uh, uh, regarding L. Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh as well. I, I'm happy to wait until such an episode would fit into your overall narrative timeline. Well, David, yes, you qualified to 
commission your own special episode. And yes, we can do Elizabeth Sea Dogs. So I, I can't see any reason why we can't do that. Um, so thank you very much for the suggestion. I'm really glad you got something out of that New Amsterdam episode. It's a real pleasure for me to write. Another person who's qualified for a special episode is uh, Terry Bain, who's written in and said, I have an idea for my special episode, but I'm afraid that it might not be a timeline appropriate for quite a while. You see, I'm a hospital administrator and recently at one of our hospitals, we had the honour of taking care of the last surviving original member of the historic World War II 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, the 131st, uh, the 101st, I beg your pardon, Airborne Division of the US Army known as Easy Company. The story of Easy Company was depicted in the HBO series Band of Brothers and uh, was a best-selling book by Stephen Ambrose. So in memory of the of this great American hero, I would like to dedicate my episode to Easy Company. But I realise that that may be too detailed and you wouldn't have enough material to dedicate an entire episode on that one particular subject. So if that's not possible, perhaps an episode on the birth of the 101st Airborne Division. Um, I'm on volume four, episode eight, and I'm rapidly catching up to current episodes. I look forward to listening to the podcast on my drive to and from work each day. I appreciate all you do making this podcast a success, and I wish you all the best in making future episodes for our listening pleasure. Keep up the great work, sir, and remember, be good. Uh, well, thank you, Terry. I can't see any reason why we can't concentrate on an episode on Easy Company. There's, uh, there is... Um, there is quite a bit of material out there we can sort of talk about various subjects I should believe on Easy Company there's, uh, there is material out there I know that so I can't see that being a problem um, so we'll look forward to that being an episode of the future um, now uh, Jeremy from Iowa or Jeremy C has written in saying hey Chris uh, so I forgot to mention I started looking for podcasts about the old empires and that's how I stumbled across yours looking through your episode list I'm quite satisfied that I'll get much enrichment from listening to you I listen to your podcast very reverently uh, like six to ten a day goodness me that sounds like torture to me uh, listening to my voice for six to ten episodes a day and I plan to catch up with all of your podcasts in about two months I hopefully would like a shout out sometime I've never had one in a podcast like Jeremy from Iowa or Jeremy C that would tickle me pink keep up the good work well consider yourself shouted out Jeremy uh, and thank you for the kind message Michael Shun has written in and said hey uh, love the podcast, just finished volume three. My only criticism would be the religious bias. Your take on Christianity was more propaganda-like than fact. Uh, Yahweh was a minor de- war deity in the Ar- Arabic pantheon. You left out that they destroyed so much history when they destroyed all the temples and sacrificed so many educated people like Hypatia. I'm not sure why you skipped all of that out uh why you skipped all of that i should say and you seem to throw a little shade at the native american mythology specifically speaking it's a million times more likely that a boulder chased someone across the great plains than it is that a minor war deity from the arab pantheon poofed everything into existence three thousand years ago 
just glad they that they lost a lot of their power. Or like the German physicist in the 1100s who said that the universe was still expanding. You would have to have, you would have had a spike driven through your tongue and been burned alive after your first episode. Other than that, other than the religious propaganda and bias, you're awesome. Well, thank you, Michael Shin. Thank you for your honesty. Um, yeah, I, I don't think um, that sounds like an attractive prospect. Um, having a spike driven through my tongue or being burned alive. So, um, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm um, I'm sort of trying to get my head around what you mean exactly by that religious bias thing. Perhaps someone else uh, could also assist by sort of clarifying there. I mean, uh, like I, I endeavour to avoid that kind of thing, the religious propaganda or bias, but then I have to be careful, obviously, to be respectful of uh, the the religions of the of the modern world. Um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't trying to. Well, I suppose I was I, I was making fun of the uh, the story about the 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 uh, the big boulder in. Uh, uh, in Okotoks, the Okotoks um, erratic, um, but uh, not really. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful um, in any way, so I apologise if it, if it if it did come across that way. Um, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I didn't talk about Hypatia. Um, I didn't. Um, yeah, I didn't mention that at all. Um, that there is a lot of. Um, individual things that I could talk about in this History of the World podcast that, um, you know, I'm never going to be able to talk about every aspect of history or every significant individual in history. Uh, It might be something that we could turn back and talk about or or maybe even someone could commission a special episode on her. Um, So, you know, it's not impossible that we will mention her at some point in the future. Um, But, yeah, I didn't really mean to... Um, sort of try and show any bias one way or the other so I'm, I'm a little confused as to where I did and if I did I, I, I sincerely apologise it wasn't it wasn't my intention um, Jamil uh, Zarouk has written in saying hello I've only recently discovered your podcast and I'm enjoying it very much I would like to know uh, if it would be okay for me to make a Dutch language version of this podcast well that, that sounds like a fantastic idea but um, I always say to anyone that does approach me on on that kind of level, it, it's um, it's quite a difficult thing for me to um, for me to initiate that that kind of thing. And obviously, um, you know, that there, there is the there there are a number of factors that come into play when um, you know suggesting such a a huge um, undertaking. Um, so look, I'm, I'm always willing to talk to people, but I think always things like this have to be made as a business proposition rather than just a a casual request. So, um, I don't know, um, if anyone who's written in with a similar request or, you know, uh, like any of like Jamel yourself, I, I don't know if that's, if, if that's your genuine intention is for it to be a business venture or or whether it's just a casual request so um hopefully you'll get back in touch with me um judith sheffer has written in um and has put uh, dear chris thank you for making a great podcast i love it and 
I'll continually look forward to new episodes. They are well written and very educational. A while ago, you sent me an email to tell me I was entitled to ask you a question being a Patreon member. I accidentally deleted that mail. Um, well, that doesn't matter. You can still ask. You can still ask a question. I hope you will still uh, grant me an opportunity, uh, which is more of a request than a specific question. I've just finished reading The Dawn of Everything by David Grieber and David uh, Wengro. Uh, the content of the book completely blew me away. I suppose you have heard of it. Well, my request of you is please read it and share your comments with your listeners. I hope this book is as inspirational and hope-giving to you as it was to me. Thanks again for your great podcast and best wishes to you and yours, Judith Sheffer from Harlem in the Netherlands. Well, Judith, um, unfortunately, I, I don't get any time in my busy life to read uh, and review books for people it's not the first time that someone's approached me and 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 asked me to do that but it's just it's just really not a practical um consideration that I can sort of squeeze that into my weekly routine um I'm sorry to say that but it might be that one of the listeners might have read that and and would be willing to discuss that it might even be something that can be sort of discussed on the um Tapper Talk discussion forum so uh, perhaps some yeah some someone can help me out there and and sort of pretend to be me let's say and read that book and review it um Emily has written in and said hi Chris at the moment, I'm travelling long term and I, it's awakened an interest uh, for me to understand the dynamics and historical context of all the places I'm visiting. Turns out the history of the world is quite complicated, so I'm glad to have found your podcast. My only goal in life right now is to learn everything. So I really love this format of moving chronologically from the very beginning. It's allowing me to understand the background of what's happening more as it unfolds, if that makes sense. I can't imagine how much work it must take to put these episodes together, really with unparalleled detail. Um, I have one somewhat trivial question. Where in England is your accent from? Uh, thank you so much for helping me learn, Emily. Do you know what? I actually, I, I've replied to you, Emily, but I forgot to talk about my accent. I was, I was too busy concentrating on uh, what you were saying about yourself, Um I completely forgot to answer your question. Um, yeah, as as ever, this this subject to my accent seems to frequently come up. Um, my accent is from Essex, um, and um, I do tend to um, I do tend to compromise it a bit when when doing the podcast. I, I certainly it's a lot more um, yeah it's it's a lot more common um, in my everyday speech. I, I tend to put an effort into to to not make it sound quite as localized uh when i'm broadcasting but yeah essex uh just northeast of london uh, so in the southeast of england uh that's where it comes from but thank you for your message emily so very quickly a couple of reviews i know we've been going along uh, on a long time but we did have a quite a bit to catch up on so um so i apologize but at the same time i don't because um i like to give a bit of um, time for my listeners, uh, especially the ones that have written in. Um, Turd Ferguson, it's a funny name, uh, from Canada, has, put, has written in saying, Top Shelf Historical Presentation. Chris and whoever helps him are producing the type of content that makes the internet worth having in my life. I only recently discovered the series. I listen to every chance 
I get. I especially like the ways the narrative of parallels between the modern and historical human experiences. Uh, thanks for all the effort that he's clearly put into this series. Well, thank you, Turd Ferguson. Um, OMG NFW uh, from uh, United States of America has written in uh, saying, uh, or has written a review, I should say, stating, well worth your time. I'm constantly searching for informative, fun and interesting history content. And this is one of the best podcasts I've found. Chris is great and I love the scope and format of the show, along with Chris's enthusiasm and openness and even his absolutely wonderful accent. Um, Well, you know, thank you so much. I did read somewhere that... um, the accent from my area of uh, the the British Isles um, was classed as the second least uh, attractive accent of the British Isles, and uh, but I won't tell you what what was uh, what was first. Uh, maybe you can guess, but um, yes. Um, so so it's nice to hear uh, one or two of you do appreciate the accent, but. Uh, there you go. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you so much. I'm sorry for the long, um, the long ending of this uh, podcast episode. But like I say, with the the passing of the Queen, we did um, lose a couple of weeks in there. And um, you know, maybe at some point in the next week or two, we might be able to concentrate a little bit on reflection of the Queen and her life. But um, we'll we'll. We'll save that for another time. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Um, Look forward to uh, joining you again next week. And until then, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.